Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, June 17th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, longtime commentary contributor, tablet columnist, and author of the best-selling new book, Secret City, which we will talk about later, Jamie Kerchick. Hi, Jamie. Hey, Welcome to you. the podcast. Sorry, sorry. Thank you for having me, John. A uh, pleasure. So um, I guess uh, we've been having our, we'll, we'll start with the January 6th hearings yesterday, uh, which were a chock-a-block with every reason why you should look at um, Trump and the uh, Trump MAGA team uh, electoral resistance machine uh, with horror and disgust and at the uh, lunacy, the madness, the ugliness, the antinomianism, every aspect of the details surrounding what they tried to do in the days leading up to January 6th and on January 6th is uh, intellectually, emotionally, politically, ideologically, and morally invalidated and invalidating. That said, this hearing, uh, both Noah and I think punches a real hole in the narrative that the committee itself wants to promulgate about what happened on January 6th, a narrative that is promulgating because it is attempting to build a criminal case for the Justice Department to prosecute Donald Trump with. And that requires making the claim that there was an organized and determined conspiracy with Trump at the head of it. Noah, why do you think yesterday's hearing punches a hole in that narrative? Well, it's centered a lot around um, Dr. Eastman and his pretty harebrained that's john eastman the uh uh former law clerk practicing lawyer claremont institute affiliated by the way i know john eastman i've known him for 25 years uh and i'm now going to say something really ugly so put your fingers in your ears he is a fucking moron (laughs) he is one of the most unimpressive people i've ever met his writing is bad his thinking is bad he is just a classic he is the version of the kind of right-wing legal hack of which there were almost none because there were no right-wing, there were very few right-wing legal things. He is the dregs of the conservative legal movement and always has been. He's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment that Claremont hired him and, 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 and had him on staff. Um, It's, he is a, he is a, he is fourth or fifth rate and, um, so go, please, I, I sure. needed to say that because <laughs> I want to make it clear that among the many horrors of what happened during the electoral period was Trump finding it impossible to find anybody in his orbit or his ambit with any independent credibility uh, who was willing to make this argument that the election was stolen, uh, had to turn increasingly to these bizarre outlier figures, Mr. Pillow, the pillow guy, uh, Sidney Powell, um, the, you know, the tragically now inebriated, constantly inebriated Rudy Giuliani, and John, and finally John Eastman, all of whom share this quality of 
uh, recklessness, uh, intellectual imprudence, the ability to stretch the truth, and and uh, and and I frankly possibly actual clinical madness. So please continue, Noah. Well, yeah, not not willing to. Uh diagnose him per se, but certainly delusional in the rhetorical sense. Uh, so his convoluted theory of the case, which had the ear of the president because nobody else was interested in uh, entertaining his delusions. But according to the testimony from John Miller, just about everybody who was sane in the orbit of the president called him, quote, crazy. Um, and according to White House lawyer uh, Eric Hirschman testified that, that we don't have testimony from Eastman. He pled the fifth 100 times, but Eastman testified in deposition that he seldom told him your, your plan's going to cause riots in the streets. And, and Eastman replied something to the effect of, quote, there's been violence in the history of our country before. And that seems to be the only mechanism, violence in the streets, that they actually could anticipate would work, at least Eastman's theory of the case. So when they the, the plan, as the committee outlines it, um, was multi-stage and it involved everything from really conventional stuff like uh, campaigns filing um, lawsuits against uh, trying to get votes recounted and trying to toss out invalid ballots, sort of very conventional stuff that's best practice for any campaign, to filing federal lawsuits that had no merit, mer not meritorious and in the wrong venue in the first place, and some more uh, uh, seditious efforts to undermine the election, like going after state legislatures, trying to get them to toss their slates and inventing uh, something that didn't exist, alternative theories, alternative slates of electors that would be subsequently uh, convened. And then when we threw this to the states, this is Eastman's idea, when he threw this to the states, then they would create these new electors and then we'd reconvene and Donald Trump would become president. So this to me, and I wrote this for MSNBC and I said it on the network yesterday and I'm currently subject to death threats for it. But this is not a plan. It's premeditated. It's, it's ad hoc with an objective in mind. But the objective is all you have in mind. The tactics keep changing when you encounter obstacle after obstacle. And again, according to Hirschman's testimony, Eastman himself con conceded that if his, his, he, they'd gotten what they wanted and it went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would have voted 9 nothing against this approach, meaning that Eastman himself knew that the only thing that would work here would be street violence. That's the only thing they could count on. Every other legal mechanism would would turn against them. But That's no, not what do you plan. mean by work? Do you mean do you mean that it would work to overturn the results of the election, or it would work because it would create would throw street a, violence as an end in itself? I can't know the man's mind. It would right. throw a wrench in the system at the very least, in a way that he concedes, according to Hirschman's testimony, it would not in in venues uh, like courts. Uh, and this, to me, again, strikes me as as so improvisatory that it is completely incompatible with the idea of having a plan. You can have an objective in mind. You can have a, a, in a, a series of ways to get there in your head. But if you keep improvising your way through all these you know, adverse circumstances, it's not really a plan, is it? No. OK, so it's, let, it's throwing yeah. it's throwing the kitchen sink. At, every, at, at, at a problem uh, in a mad scramble. This is what I said. And there's so much resistance among Democrats to the idea that this was anything other than a, a, a masterminded conspiracy. But why? That's what I don't, I don't understand. Why, why, why hang your hopes on the idea that this is a well-constructed plan? What is there is plenty horrible enough uh, as as John well, made pointed out at, at the start of this, in every conceivable realm, it is a, a horrible, 
horrible stain on, on our on our country and our politics. Can I interject? Can I, yeah, it seems very similar to Russiagate with me in that the truth was bad enough. Like if you look at what Vladimir, what, what Donald Trump said about Russia, his public statements during the campaign um, about, you know, accepting the recognition of Crimea, his praise for Vladimir Putin, um, the truth was bad enough. And yet for three years, this whole conspiratorial, you know, Baroque plan out of a John le Carré novel was spun, right? Where Donald Trump was recruited by the Soviets in 1987. And there was a meeting in Prague and this and that. And it was this whole convoluted scheme. And it seems that the Democrats are taking the same approach now with January 6th. They can't just accept the awfulness of it and run on that. It has to be this elaborate. And it's also on the other side, it's like QAnon. Well, there's no basis in truth to that, but they ascribe and they attribute all these um, powers to the people, you know, to the corrupt elites who are raping children in the basement. And then Donald Trump is going to come in with this cape with, you know, the with the restored uh, soul of John F. Kennedy Jr. and save us. Everyone is everyone is overthinking everything. Right. Well, in fact, if there's a scheme, you could almost say that it was the opposite of a seven-point plan, by which I mean in the early going after the election, the Trump campaign pursued conventional means of challenging election results. It, uh, bad, which at the time was described as a coup. Right, but, and I remember but, going out and saying, right. well, let's not call yeah. best practices a coup. But here. badly, like it did it badly. They filed in the wrong courts. They they had They had... They had affidavits that people then denied that they had signed or they had affidavits of people attesting to having seen things that then they had to admit they hadn't seen all of that. But it was fairly conventional, right? Uh, the Pennsylvania voting count was improperly uh, allowed to continue in various ways. A case that Alito, Samuel Alito himself believed was the case that a Pennsylvania Supreme Court had gone beyond its writ in hand. I can't even remember what the specific details were, but uh, in, in how and how votes were being counted or when they were being counted or something like that. But in Michigan and Arizona and Georgia and these places, there were conventional efforts being made to contest the results of the elections. And they went really badly, like they won nothing, right? There were, I think there were 59 cases and not, not one of them went their way. And then came this meeting, either in late November, or early December, something like that, in the, in the Oval Office with, with the MyPillow guy and, and, and uh, Sidney Powell and Rudy. And then they started going off the rails, having, having tried to pursue albeit incompetently, whatever was whatever tool was at hand to contest elections, they then decided they were going to go off making these claims that were still, you know, that the voting machines themselves had been rigged, that the Venezuelans had stolen the election, this, that, blah, 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 blah. Now, you don't, you don't Finally, have to prove yeah. competency to prove conspiracy. No, that's not what anybody's saying. No, right. But here's my point, which is that's not a seven point plan. There was a there was a one there was a two point plan and that two point plan failed. And then came the 
we're now going to be absolutely batshit crazy plan, which wasn't a plan by definition since it was the batshit crazy plan. We're going to say the Venezuelans did this, Smartmatic did this, Dominion did that, vote, you know, a, a suitcase in Georgia. There was a suitcase in Georgia that where they where they 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 manufactured votes, which was actually a suitcase in which they had placed voting ballots for security reasons. And they're going to do this. And they're going to blah, 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 blah. None of it was real. And all of it, as we can see, was impartially uh, done because it was wildly successful for fundraising purposes to gin up these conspiracy theories against Trump, that this conspiracy had been done against Trump, raised $250 million. Uh, and then we got to the strategy. So the strategy was to use the Electoral Count Act to get displaced uh, Biden's victory, right? And so what's interesting there is that there's a kernel of reality there that goes entirely off the rails because having separate slates of electors, that's the election of 1876. There were separate slates of electors in 1876, an election that was decided in favor of the person who got the least number of votes. And in fact, you know, a, a corrupt bargain was actually struck basically to get Hayes the presidency in 1876. And then they rewrote the laws so that it couldn't happen again. But there was at least this idea that, well, if you, you know, if you have a fate, if you have electors who were wrongly elected, you could send other electors to Washington and someone could recognize them. The vice president could recognize them. But here's the other weird part about this brilliant, I know, incompetent conspiracy. They wanted Pence to recognize separate slates of electors. They weren't there. They weren't there. The, the electoral ballots were in the Senate chamber, right? The, the actual vote of the Electoral College to say, I'm not going to accept these from these states I'm going to accept the ballots from somebody else. You would have had to have separate ballots or you would have had to have the electors come into the chamber and say they were the proper electors to be recognized by Pence. So even if Pence had done the right thing, according to Trump, right, which is what Trump said on January 4th, or, you know, we need Pence to do the right thing. They didn't even provide Pence with the modality to do the right thing. That's the comic aspect of this. It's the yada, yada, yada conspiracy where, Pence says, I won't accept this, and yada, 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 Trump remains president. Yada, yada, yada is everything, and they didn't have a plan. So the idea, as I said, it was promulgated by Liz Cheney in that on the first night of those hearings that a seven-point plan was established to get Trump to overturn the results of the election is belied by everything that they are revealing in the fact pattern that is being exposed during the hearings that this was all just some, you know, delusional effort to just not say, okay, I lost. I mean, it doesn't even seem like they had a strategy to win. That's my point, which is that Eastman's strategy wasn't even a strategy to win because they hadn't set things up so that there well, were by, the By his own admission, him. and that's really the, the crux of, if there's anything that you can latch on to from the perspective of those who want to discredit this committee and none of whom have, by the way, we see a whole lot of table pounding, just about no engagement with the substance of what we're listening to in this committee hearing, but they could latch on to Hirschman's testimony, suggesting that Eastman himself knew that his plan 
was DOA. Well, that's an important point because here, here's what hurt. So they have this conversation and first Eastman says, well, I believe that the Supreme Court would come down seven to two, uh, you know, against us. And then he says it would come down nine to zero against us. Well, by the way, if it comes down seven to two against you, you, you lose. So why, what victory, what does that hold as a victory? Since, of course, in the end, the Supreme Court would, in fact, have to have to adjudicate this. So Eastman is going, so this is where you don't know if Eastman is the effing idiot that I described or is like a person desperately in need of Thorazine or, you know, electroconvulsive therapy or uh, any combination of medications that could maybe get him also be able to write a coherent English sentence, which he is unable to do and has always been unable to do as one of the worst writers on the right. Nonetheless, if Eastman didn't have a, he, he said they weren't going to win in the end to, uh, was it Hirschman or Jacob? I can't remember. He said to Jacob, Hirschman. who was, he had a conversation no, no. with Hirschman because that was the only person. Oh, well, they had no, an email no, conversation no, with, the day with, of. with Pence's counsel. Right. Mr. Jacob, whose first name I can't remember, who testified right. yesterday, he said, how's this going to come down? And, Penn, and, 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 and Eastman said nine to zero against. So he was advocating for a strategy of, you know, because this was all about in the end, this is all about Trump's own idea about how to save face. And what's more, for all we know, even though Trump has no plans and is not a planner, this was the most brilliant long term strategy ever because he got a lot of people to believe the election was stolen. He is the front runner for the 2024 nomination. He's running against he'll be he may be running against a senile guy where, where inflation is at 47 and a half percent. And he'll be president again in 2025 because he didn't concede in 2020. So maybe maybe this whole thing was is the greatest political strategy in world history. I don't know. Who like who likes who who wants to take that up? I just think this is so representative of the Trump era in that you don't know to what extent you should be crying and you don't know what extent you should be laughing. It's like it's it's appalling what happened. It is everything that well, not everything. It's not 9-11. It's not it's not Pearl Harbor, but it's really awful and it's terrible. But at the same time, there's this Keystone Cops element to it where it never would have succeeded what they were trying to do. And so, again, I just return back to this point. It's like it's bad enough. And yet in the hands of many people in the media and the Democrats, it has to be dramatized and you know exaggerated and drawn out into this, um, the worst thing that's ever, ever happened. And I don't really know where exactly one one should fit in, in their view on this. It's, it's often hard to discern um, how seriously terrible something is versus just how embarrassing or uh, you know absurd it is. Look, I think it was seriously terrible. Hundreds of people have been found guilty of criminal trespass of the, of the, of the, capital, of the capital building of the United States. Uh, an insurrection, or was it a, right. an attempt to overthrow the government? Well, I think in both cases, the answer is yes, to some extent, 
that it was haplessly and hopelessly incompetent and wouldn't have succeeded in any way, shape, or form doesn't mean that the attempt wasn't made. You know, an attempted murder, you can still be convicted of attempted murder if you don't shoot the gun that you're pointing. You can still be accused of attempted murder if that was your purpose. And I do think it's one of the worst things that ever happened, but I don't think that the fact pattern that they're trying to establish is going to succeed in making a, 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 a case, a criminal case against Trump for leading this conspiracy. He's responsible for it. He was impeached for it. He was, he was properly impeached and should have been convicted for it. And Republicans may rue the day that they didn't convict him because then he would have been out of public life. But and he should have been, but um, I don't know that you can look at all this and say, until you have evidence that Trump himself and not these secondary actors were having these arguments in and around Trump, if you don't have Trump saying, I want there to be an insurrection in the Capitol that will then let make me president, I don't know that you can get even to an indictment. Hey, I mean, just regarding it, how much to to be horrified. How much, one of the things is, I think we should. It's worth just remembering or or uh, reinforcing is that I think the crowd, the mob, would have killed Pence had they gotten a hold. Uh, angry mobs kill for you know reasons uh, uh, sort of far less uh, deep rooted and and you know having having to do less with their with their 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 versions of of patriotism and ideology. So I, I think there's no question about that. But I think Jamie gets to something when he says that, you know, you don't know how much to, to sort of laugh or cry over it. I think that's precisely why there's always this need to shape Trump's chaotic thoughts and, and conduct into a sort of clear, linear, evil plan, because to, to simply uh, put forward the 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 sort of the chaos and the mess and the impulsivity of of what he does makes a much more difficult case to sort of prosecute. So in order to bring some clarity to it, you have to say, okay, this is step A, step B, step C. You know, and the, and and we did see that in the in the Russia collusion nightmare, and 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 we are seeing it to some extent here. You know, also Trump has free speech rights. This is the complicated aspect here that nobody really is, is dealing with, which is that Trump is allowed to believe that the election was stolen from him. And it doesn't matter whether everybody told him the election wasn't stolen from him. He can believe whatever he wants to believe and he can say whatever he wants to say. What he can't do is break the law by encouraging others to act criminally on his behalf. So he can claim that he never lost the election forever, the way Stacey Abrams claimed she never lost the election that she lost. That's his right. And and you can you judge him for the fact that he is so, you know, without, uh, you know, any sense of balance and or, or has such a uh, pathological need not to be a loser that he will claim to have won things that he lost and and you know and let, watch the world burn just so that you know he doesn't have to m admit that he lost but that doesn't make him a criminal makes him a weak bad loser and it means that he's a person you should judge accordingly but it doesn't make him a criminal um and 
that I think is the problem with the the goal of the January 6th committee, which should have been to create, to, 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 to provide us with all the information we needed about how, about what happened and how and where, and it's done a lot of that work in a way that I think is very helpful, but it didn't need to create something that it could then put pressure on Merrick Garland to demand, you know, to, to, to indict Trump, which is a very, very, very high bar to clear. Uh, and there is serious jurisprudence that says, you know, you can't indict a president for his actions while in office unless you can definitively prove that he did something actually criminal. And that's not circumstantial. That's not all this stuff happened. And it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't said all these things. Therefore, he is he is responsible. Therefore, he is also criminally liable. Those two are not the same thing. And, uh, you know, uh, and so we're just so I'm glad that they have decided to, you know, serve the interests of MSNBC's daytime programming and nighttime programming and in making all of this as, you know, juicy as they possibly can. Uh, you know, now we have this bizarre side story about whether or not Clarence Thomas should resign from the Supreme Court because his wife, Ginny, was emailing people in Arizona and John Eastman as though, you know, as though, by the way, as though if any of that were the case as a simple matter, um, or if any of that were actionable or serious, that uh, we would have any reason to think that Clarence Thomas wouldn't necessarily recuse himself in, in those cases, but that he should resign from the court because his wife was emailing people. That's just, that's just fantasy football. That's like all I've ever wanted since 1991 was not to have Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. So maybe I can get this out of that. That would be great. And you know what? We'll we'll keep running this tape of Jared saying that uh, White House counsel Pat Cipollone was whining because that'll just make him look bad. And then everyone will know that Jared Kushner. So at least we can get people thinking Jared Kushner is bad and Clarence Thomas should resign from the Supreme Court. That's all this just liberal, I don't know, politics. It's like West Wing politics porn. You know, it's like Aaron Sorkin's wet dreams coming to life. It's it's. um. It's very, you know, it's, it's, you know, good. So enjoy for your billion, for your million viewers. Let's, let's see what good that does the country, but you know, what would do you good if you were a small businessman, if you were a small businessman, what would do you good would be to look into Bambi, Bambi, uh, B-A-M-B-E-E created specifically for small business to help you with HR because HR manager salaries aren't cheap running uh, HR issues can kill you. $70,000 a year for dealing with wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations. But Bambi provides you with a dedicated HR manager, helps you craft HR policy and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. So change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength with a dedicated HR manager available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, Bambi customizes your policies to fit your business and helps you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month to month, no hidden fees. Cancel any time. Get your free HR audit today at bambee.com slash commentary. That's bambi.com slash commentary, spelled bam to the bee.com slash commentary. Jamie, um, you as a chronicler, uh, often a chronicler of the more um, extreme elements of uh, 
left-wing delusion and uh, bullying and stuff like that. You must have particularly enjoyed the story that people have been injecting directly into their veins since its publication earlier this week. Everybody I know emailing it around with incredible glee the story from The Intercept, not something ordinarily a website that is not often shared um, happily among conservatives, called The Elephant in the Zoom by Ryan Grimm, another writer formerly of The Huffington Post and now and now of The Intercept, uh, whose work is not ordinarily commonly shared happily by people on the right. Uh, subtitled Meltdowns have brought progressive advocacy groups to a standstill at a critical moment in world history. So Jamie, basically, uh, as you know, having read it, the piece says that uh, with the advent of George Floyd and COVID and, uh, and the zooming of, of America, um, almost every major and many minor uh, social justice groups, instead of pursuing social justice action for, for, the, uh, for the benefit of the people that they're supposed to help, has become solipsistically uh, obsessed with uh, and its staffers are solidly obsessed with their own conduct, with the way they're treated, with the policies of the groups themselves, with the behavior of management. They're not tending to their business. All they want is to have internal uh, struggle sessions and cultural revolutions and kill their bosses uh, metaphorically and share their pain and make their causes. Uh, make sure that uh, rather than pursuing uh, their causes, they 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 are just awash in their own uh, self-involved pain. Uh, what did you make of it? I think it's an interesting sign because it's um, you know that this has been going on for years. It predates the George Floyd uh, incident in the summer of 2020. Um, these sorts of internal woke battles in liberal or left-wing spaces. Um, we could trace them back probably to 2014, 2015. Um, and if you live in Washington and you know people who work in the progressive space, you know that these sorts of woker than now battles um, have been going on. You see it playing out on Twitter sometimes. Um, and I think it's interesting that the fact that it's now being aired in this way, that like the dirty laundry is being aired in this way is a sign that there are people who are really taking this very seriously and are very concerned about it on the left because there is such a sense of fear um, and intimidation when it comes to these issues, particularly for a man like Ryan Grimm, who goes out of his way to acknowledge, I am a white man. I am not the best messenger to convey this, this message. He has to issue that disclaimer. Things must be really bad that it is now becoming public in this manner. You know, basically what, what people on Substack have been documenting for two years now is now finally getting up in, in, in airing in one of the leading um, journals of the progressive left, I think is a, is a welcome sign that it's now being discussed and being talked about. See, I, I love the piece because I think it, it, it points to something larger, which of course Grimm can't acknowledge and I'm sure doesn't believe, which is that it shows that you can't run a movement that's built on victimhood and destruction. It is the opposite of what a functioning organization looks like. So this was inevitable. And so it, it shows the failure of leftism in microcosm. 
if if it's if if identity if identitarian leftism is sinking individual nonprofit organizations or paralyzing them, it sure as hell isn't going to work on the rest of the world. So I'm of two minds on on this, and I've been of two minds since I wrote my first book on social justice, <clears throat> published in 2019. It talked about this very phenomenon where some days this movement looks like an all-consuming Borg that is destined to overtake everything it comes in contact with and assimilate it. And yet, other days, the movement looks like it's very self-destructive, very narrow and inwardly focused, parochial to a degree that it can't possibly acquire a broader audience. And it is consumed with uh, you know, civil war and, and consumed with uh, attacking people, particularly people who agree with them, because those are the people most likely to genuflect to the movement and lend it legitimacy and make it appear efficacious. Um, this piece suggests the latter, right? More than the former. But at some point, they will succeed. At some point, these the the group, the people, and I talked about them, all the people on the left I talked about for my next book, they're terrified. They won't speak up in public and they will acquiesce to what this movement wants to do. And when the movement is finally successful in quieting all the dissent within its ranks, it'll train its fire on harder targets. Well, but it has, I mean, it has succeeded in in large extent to in sort of, you know, it's it's never had the country more reflective of its wishes and aims uh, than it is now. But which is part of, I think, the problem is the Grimpeace points to. It's like there's so there's a sort of overconfidence um, that that now they think, oh, the world is ours. We could just sort of keep bulldozing over everything and everyone and, and sort of not realize their gains. But then again, I think those larger gains are also going to fall apart, as as some of them already are, um, because the rest of the world does not want to be held to this, this to this standard, and it does not want. By the way, the other interesting does not want cancel culture. The other interesting thing about the piece was that there was all this hair pulling, and, and no one wanted to just use the words cancel culture um, because they felt that that was sort of giving the right a gift. You know, because you're not supposed to acknowledge that cancel culture is a real thing, but they're, you know, they're talking about cancel culture in its in its most obvious platonic form. Look, I uh, I think everybody's points here are, are are great, and obviously we're, you know, we're at the, we're at the beginning of uh, this struggle, but where where it's where it's familiar going back to the 60s and the explosion of, you know, social justice groups in the 1960s is this question, which is, is, our, is, is your purpose to change the world and however you have to do it, you do it, you can use violence, you can use law, you can infiltrate institutions, you can blow up institutions or whatever, or is this about, um, doing and controlling things as close to you individual leftist as possible meaning um do you spend do you help destroy the first or second wave of the feminist movement with internal battles over whether or not sex is rape and whether or not you know uh uh having children is bad or good whereas or earlier feminists <clears throat> Right, but where's where's the and, and yeah, um, right. uh, what's it? Um, what's the guy's name? Uh, I don't know. Liberal tolerance in uh, liberal intolerance. Marcuse, Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse. Right. Thank you, thank no, but I think ultimately it's like okay, so here's we're feminists. So what we want to do is 
uh, eliminate uh, laws and practices uh, that you know that 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 hamper the you know egalitarian uh, balance between men and women, and we want to change social structures so that women can have a you know have more of a role in the outside world and feel less responsible for uh, managing the domestic space, and then you have those people who have very practical ideas of whom like the most notable uh, was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Who was working to litigate issues relating to sex discrimination and stuff like that with radical feminists like Shulamith Firestone and others who were basically what they wanted to do was say that the relations between men and women are, are effectively evil and that this is all just power and dominance. And until we, you know, until we change the entire social order of the world, uh, you know, none, none of this matters. And, uh, and, you know, this was a very big, this was a very big struggle. It was a struggle within the left over whether or not, you know, were we just, just trying to stop the war in Vietnam or did we actually want a, some kind of communist upheaval inside the United States and all of this. And there's something about these, millenarian goals, you know, rewriting the rewriting the relations between the sexes or, you know, uh, changing the basic order of society that tilts things toward extremism and solipsism at the same time in which what people want to do is go at people who are closest to them who do not believe exactly what they want them to believe or do not stand for every single thing that they want to stand for. And it's very Ultimately, you know, if you are a progressive, you're supposed to believe that your purpose is changing the world for the better, um, you know, and making these changes for the better. But instead, you're like the person screaming at Nicholas Christakis, the Yale, you know, housemaster, saying, I don't want to hear about that. I just want to talk to you about my pain. All this is supposed to be about my pain. And there's a fantastic story in this in this piece by by Ryan Grimm about Mark Rudd. Mark Rudd was one of the leaders of of, of SDS, Students for Democratic Society, shut down Columbia University, uh, went on the lam after you know basically became a terrorist. Went on the lam after the Weather Underground blew up this house in uh, uh, in Greenwich Village in 1970. Ended up serving a prison. He was as was as bonkers and 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 evil a political actor. Uh, you know, in the 1960s, as you could possibly have, he had some kind of come to Jesus moment where he realized that what he wanted was crazy. He stopped being that person, but asked about the turmoil engulfing left-wing organizations, Rudd, who is now, I don't know how old he is, 70, I, you know, he was, uh, he was 22 out of uh, 75, six, 75. Uh, I have myself encountered the turmoil multiple times in the last years. And in fact, I was thrown out of an organization that I founded because of my racism. What was my racism? When I tell people things that they didn't want to hear, he says. So what, but what, by what he means is that somebody said, you know, what we should do is issue a statement about how we are dealing with our own racism. And Mark Rudd said, no, what we need to do is like, you know, blow up a nuclear power plant. I mean, not that he actually wants to blow up anything anymore, but in other words, like what we want to do is the thing that we're trying to do. And what they want to do is say, we're bad. We, we internally are evil and bad. 
and uh, our organization is as bad as everything else. Now, that may be because the people who are doing this want to kick him out so they can take it over. That's understandable. But I mean, the idea that Mark Rudd isn't left wing enough or isn't progressive enough for a 20 for a 21st century progressive is 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 ultimately just absolutely um, joyful. I mean, it's just just joyous. But um and and it does it does mean I think there is something that this is a Rube Goldberg machine. This I think is is Abe's point, which is that these ideas breed this kind of self destructiveness because they're not constructive. They're the opposite of constructive. They are it, they are disempowering, not empowering. They say you are a victim forever, not that you can change your circumstances. And as such, you know you can't move forward if you're a victim like you're a victim so what you need is you need restitution and reparation and healing and care and you know bandages and someone to put a cold compress on your forehead while you have the vapors that's what happens when you're a victim if you're an activist you're supposed to be active and outward acting and trying to change things you know at the root so um but i think from our perspective this is only good because you know they're 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 doing a lot of damage to their own cause that if they were more focused and less you know self-involved uh, with the kind of money that's been raining down on them for the last five years from uh, corporations desperate to buy buy them off and uh buy their silence or whatever um they could be doing a lot of they could be doing a lot worse things and by putting these, you know, shackles on themselves and handcuffing themselves and turning themselves interior, where this one activist head of an organization said that ordinarily, you know, she would be spending 25% of her time time dealing with internal organizational problems, like any manager, and yet now she spends 90% of her time dealing with woke uprisings and what policies they're going to change and then students so she only spends 10 percent of her time trying to change the world so thank god for that because what she wants to change we don't look I, I want to say one more thing even though i'm like blathering on there is a large kernel of truth that these people who work in these organizations who are who are attacking them from the inside they're right about and it is a very interesting thing and it's it's interesting about nonprofits in general but also about progressive organizations in particular which is because people, the people who start them, run them, and want to dominate them, believe what they are doing is uh, they're saving the world from, from evil. Um, they give themselves, they often give themselves a pass on their personal conduct toward the people that they work with because the, the nobility of their actions is so central. If they treat people like crap, if they're insulting, if they underpay people, if they play favorites, if they make a workplace a living hell, that's all fine because what they're doing is so fantastic that, you know, this is, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And this is, this is what it's like. And you better understand and da, 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 da. And this is a much, this is much more likely to be the case in organizations that are not driven by the profit motive, despite what Hollywood wants to make you think when it portrays evil corporations, than it is about places that are not about the profit motive, but are about virtue signaling. Because virtue signalers, when they do, when they close the door, uh, they're often not very nice people and they don't treat people well and they behave like garbage to everybody. Anybody have any... <laughs> 
reaction. I mean, nonprofits have this problem just in general because the the question is, what is the incentive? What is the workplace incentive? It's not to you know, you're not trying to you're not trying to make money. You're not trying to Im- Im- increase market share. You're not trying to do this or that or the or pr- provide a really good service. You're doing something more more abstract and evanescent and hard to define, and and urgent and you know uh, dire, right? As if you're if you are on the extreme left here, you're you're doing something that the that the planet needs right now, and uh, it doesn't matter whose feathers get ruffled in the process. Right. So all I'm saying is that these places do often treat people really badly. Um, the problem is that when they when 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 these explosions happen, they don't actually happen in the right in the right way. Or you know the what they're what they're supposedly focused on is social justice issues rather than like, you know, you really suck as a boss. And you know what? We're not even doing that. We could be doing twice as well if you weren't such a jerk and treated people so badly. And people on Capitol Hill didn't want to meet with you because you're so obnoxious. And unpleasant, you know that kind of thing. Instead of being, <laughs> you're a racist. Our organization is awash in racism. Blah blah blah. Anyway, that's my that's my that's my weird, sympathetic take on what goes on inside some of these organizations. But the fact that there is no profit motive, and the danger of doing things without a profit motive, is one of the many 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 subjects that you will find in David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths. Uh, David, the money manager with three and a half billion dollars under management, friend of commentary earlier this week, guest on the podcast, has published this daily primer that is an uh, is an education in economics that will help explain why things like profits are good and how they function as a good organizing principle that helps not only uh, increase human flourishing, but also in, uh, provides an increase in liberty. We're talking about exchanging goods and services in a way that helps society and function in good working order. And when we eliminate those or interfere with those, that's when a lot of trouble starts. So that's David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Get it at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, wherever you get your fine books, B-A-H-N-S-A-N. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. And now let's talk about another book on the bestseller list, amazingly, I mean, not amazing, because uh, so Jamie, your book, Secret City, which is a portrait of gay Washington uh, in but the before we get into it, I do want to say that watching the the mainstream embrace of Jamie's book has been like Jimmy Conway watching as Tommy's get gets made like we're all there with you. <laughs> we're all there with you. And I mean, I, it, and hopefully it ends better you. for you than it did for Joe Pesci. Thank you very much. Yeah. OK, so let, let's talk a little bit about. So um, this is a barn burner of a book. I'm, 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 as I told Jamie, I'm not all the way through it, but um, uh, basically it's a, it it begins uh, with the outset of the Roosevelt administration uh, up to, I guess, relatively speaking, the present day and attempts to tell the story of Washington and the official political world of Washington through the experiences, reactions to, and reactions against, at least in the part that I've read through, uh, uh, very closeted men uh, in positions of high influence in government and what they had to do both to keep themselves closeted, to continue functioning uh, as, uh, you know, effectively and uh, with, with with the support and authority of the 
the people who employed them and the elected officials and presidents who, who depended on them and how uh, so many of them were laid low either by the threat of exposure or by the actual exposure and how the rise of the of fears of uh, national security fears about uh, betrayal, spying, and, uh, and the passing of secret government matters to enemies of the United States functioned in tandem to create an atmosphere that uh, oddly grew more and more and more restrictive and more threatening rather than less uh, as, as, as time went on. So, Jamie, please uh, dilate upon. Yeah, no, that's an accurate, that's a pretty accurate summary. Um, The book looks at, I would say it offers maybe an an alternate history of Washington from the New Deal to to Bill Clinton during the era, uh, during when I, what what I call the specter of homosexuality haunted Washington. Uh, And this was an era when to be gay was the worst possible thing you could be in American politics. It was worse than being a communist. And this really begins around World War II, because that is when homosexuality goes from being merely a sin and a medical condition and something that is uh, socially disapproved of. It transforms into a national security threat, because that is when America becomes a global superpower. It starts building uh, civilian and military intelligence agencies. It needs to start managing uh, secrets and building a bureaucracy for their attainment and, and, uh, and management. Uh, and the worst secret of all that one can have is to be gay. And so it is believed that gay people will be more susceptible to treason. And because they live in such secrecy, there's no such thing as an open homosexual, really. There are a handful that I write about in this era, but to be gay was something that you did not talk about, obviously. It's this secret world. Um, and it and you see it playing a role in basically every major American political phenomenon and event from World War II to the Hiss Chambers case. I have two whole chapters on the sort of homoerotic overtones or undertones, I should say, of the Hiss Chambers case, McCarthyism, uh, the court of Camelot under Kennedy, Nixon's paranoia, uh, and Reaganism is, you know, the whole Reagan administration, um, the, probably the, the, the gayest up to that point in terms of its well, just real aura around Ronald and Nancy, but also just in terms of the number of staff that they had and, and friends and associates. So um, if you're into you know, American political history or diplomatic history, espionage, um, I, think this, I think you'll find this book uh, will, will teach you many things. I mean, they're just, they're also, it's just very juicy. So I, rather than, I, I, want, I want to focus on this because I want to help you sell books and <laughs> You know, I know a lot about a lot of this stuff and, and have read uh, have read a lot of um, these new gay histories of the United States. Uh, uh, what, what was his name? Saunders. Um, George Chauncey. George, George Chauncey, right. Uh, gay New York. Yeah, Gay New York and uh, the Gay Metropolis by... Um, Charles Kaiser. By Charles Kaiser and others. Uh and um, what you what you do here is that you weave these kind of mm-hmm. remarkable, long forgotten tales of uh, character assassination and personal rivalries and the use of accusation as a form of 
you know, control or, you know, bureaucratic one-upsmanship or something like that in very vivid ways that, um, that, that, that very much mirror and parallel anything that would happen today with a lot of different kinds of things, but where you see the birth of the whispering campaign using, using friendly newspaper men to pass illicit stories off. Um, and particularly this one really amazing tale that you don't, you can't really get to the bottom of, of uh, Senator Walsh from mm-hmm. Massachusetts, who was accused of being a participant in orgies at a townhouse in Brooklyn. Um, and, a, and because he was an America firster and opposed to the entry in World War II, um, some of America's most august liberals, including the lawyer who helped make sure that Ulysses was no longer deemed an obscene book, were basically peddling yeah. defamatory slanders against him for participating in these, in these, in, and it appears not to have been true, right? I mean, no, there's no evidence. This is, right. this is the first outing in American politics. It's a Senator David Walsh, who had a very legendary political career. He was the first Catholic governor of Massachusetts, the first Democrat from Massachusetts elected to the Senate since the Civil War, but an isolationist and therefore an antagonist of FDR. And in 1942, the New York Post, which at the time was a liberal newspaper uh, owned by Dorothy Schiff, the daughter of the, uh, G- the German Jewish financer, Jacob Schiff. Um, this is actually just a couple of weeks after the paper became a tabloid. The Post had been a broadsheet and literally in April, 1942, it switched to tabloid. And then just a few weeks later, it has the best possible tabloid story in the world. They allege that a Senator X was frequenting a brothel in Brooklyn near the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And keep in mind, this is just a few months after America entered World War II, right? Uh, that he was frequenting a brothel in the, near the Brooklyn Navy Yard that was being frequented <clears throat> by Nazi spies. And Morris Ernst, the aforementioned lawyer, uh, was the general counsel of the New York Post. He was also the general counsel of the ACLU. So this is really the sort of uh, apex of kind of liberal intelligentsia. They, the Post, with the encouragement of FDR, and I, you can find, I found the correspondence between FDR and Ernst in the FDR library was providing encouragement for this. The Post, um, after several days of sort of riling up the public and building up this story, they name, <clears throat> they name Walsh as the senator. Uh, <clears throat> and it becomes this massive scandal, but the Post is the only paper that's covering it. I mean, this is how taboo the subject was. And in fact, the words homosexuality never appear in any of the Post series. It's all alluded to. It's, you know, this is a house of degradation frequented by men. Um, and it's a real juicy tabloid, you know, New York story. Um, but it turns out it was a case of mistaken identity. Uh, it was another man who sort of maybe looked like David Walsh. Um, the Post never apologized and it basically ruined his career. He ended up losing his reelection race to, to Henry Cabot Lodge. What I think the story illustrates is that, you know, in this era, you know, homosexuality or, or, or the gay, this is long before gay rights became a concept. This was not, this was not a subject that anyone had any sort of positive feelings about. I mean, liberals would use these smears against conservatives. Conservatives would use them against liberals. Uh, the ACLU uh, would sort of tangentially be involved in, a, in fomenting this hysteria. 
Um, and I think, you know, it's just important to understand that this is what this is what America was like. It's not like that anymore. It's very hard to imagine this today, uh, particularly during, you know, June when no no corporation seems to be um, not uh, flying the flag, de- de- declaring their yeah, declaring their allegiance to, the, you know, the gay, the gay pride movement or whatnot. But this was a very different era 80 years ago in, in America. I mean, one thing that uh, should be said before we we start is that is that the fear that um, officials of all sorts uh, were uh, in 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 the foreign policy establishment and maybe in the in the FBI were uniquely susceptible uh, or or in danger of being um, falling into kind of a blackmail trap. Yeah. Uh, was was real like there what there was there was an effort in the United States to you know there 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 were Soviet spies in the United States and and there was not that this is this is sort of analogous but not the same there was the the fact of the the British the Kim Philby Burg, Guy Burgess spy yeah. ring uh, but of course what was interesting about them in Britain uh, was that um, they became communists. In college, they weren't recruited by the Soviet Union. They were true believers from the very yeah. beginning, and uh, and were part of. You know, it, it was as though the secret that they kept as uh, as homosexual men was mirrored, at least in the public consciousness, by the secrets they were keeping as uh, august, high-ranking figures. You know, in in British society, who were then also looking to you know undermine British society by trading secrets with the Soviets. Yeah, well, Philby Philby wasn't gay. Burgess was flamboyantly. Oh, I'm sorry, so. did I? I'm sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, Burgess right. was flamboyantly so, and that it, it had and nothing. Claim, to, right. That it had nothing to do with his. Well, he 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 became a con. He was he was a fervent believing communist. He wasn't certainly not blackmailed into it. <clears throat> but the Defense Department commissioned a study in the early 1990s, back when the gays in the military debate was flaring up. And they actually studied over 100 cases of Americans committing espionage. And they found six involving homosexuals, but not a single one was due to blackmail. It was for money. It was the more prosaic reason was, was for money. So there actually was not, at least in the United States, there was not a single example of this ever happening. Um, and in fact, the okay. only example that that was ever cited um, was a case involving a Austro-Hungarian head of military counterintelligence uh, who became the sort of legendary story of a, of a gay man sort of um, brought into treason by by the Russian Empire because of because they tried to blackmail him. That, too, turned out to be false. It was also because of money. Right. Um, so the, Colonel so the whole, that's the famous Colonel Riedel. Colonel Radel. There's a great Radel, movie, yeah. actually, a great yeah. Hungarian movie by Istvan Shebo about that. Yeah. Um, but that had nothing to do with his being gay. He had multiple houses and a right. giant wine cellar and, you know, car. I mean, he, he was just a very avaricious individual. Um, so but but this this becomes really the reigning orthodoxy. And there's really no one in Washington who ever really challenges it. There's there's a handful of people. Max yeah. Lerner, a very uh, legendary liberal American Jewish journalist probably wrote for commentary at some point, I'm sure. Yeah, a columnist uh, for the New York Post. No, columnist, yeah, columnist, and he actually he yeah. does a, he does a great series for the Washington Post, sorry for the New York Post in 1950 called the Washington Sex Story, where he comes down to Washington in the midst of the sort of McCarthyite hysteria about gays in the State Department, and he interviews people. He actually commits journalism, uh, and he finds that there's very little basis for this for this fear. But he's an, it's an extremely rare opinion to hear. 
Well, you also, you also, you tell one, and I want to sort of conclude on this, even though I, everything I'm talking about with you is in the early stages of the book, yeah. because that's where I've gotten to so far. But you tell this astonishing story, because of course, a lot of the I, thinking about why uh, homosexuals would be more inclined toward betrayal or would be more inclined came directly out of Freudian thinking about homosexuality. Mm. And you tell this story about a book that I had no idea existed. The only one, as far as I'm aware, with the exception of some of the early work with, 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 um, uh, whoever that early collaborator was with Freud, that he was going to co-author about Woodrow Wilson with one of the early characters in yeah. your book, who is clearly a closeted, who was himself yeah. a closeted homosexual. Can you just yeah, relay so, that story? So Will, William Bullitt was the first ambassador to the Soviet Union and to France. And he was a very brilliant young diplomat, but he had fallen out with Woodrow Wilson over the Versailles Treaty. He had opposed it, um, thought it was a failure. And in the 1930s, he's living in Europe and he gets to know uh, Sigmund Freud, who he starts seeing for psychoanalysis. And the two of them bond over their mutual loathing of Wilson. Freud hates Wilson because of the Versailles Treaty as well, because he blamed him for the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the two of them collaborate on really the first psychobiography of an American president. This is long before, you know, armchair psychoanalysis of the president became a national pastime. And it's called um, uh, Thomas Woodrow Wilson. And they basically imply in so many words that Wilson was a, 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 had, was, 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 was a latent closeted homosexual, uh, that he had an Oedipal complex, that he hated his father, um, and that this sort of played out in his weakness that he showed during the Versailles Treaty negotiations. And instead of instead of, you know, standing up to the Europeans more. Right. He was weak and was was a, a supplicant to them. Um, and the book was not published until af long after the death of Freud's widow. It wasn't published until 1967 because that was sort of the agreement. But it caused a real scandal when it when it came out in sort of the Freudian community. Um, in sort of the in the presidential scholar community as well, it was a it was a very strange um, production. Well, anyway, as I say, it, it was it was it, among uh, like on every page there's news to me, and that's very rare for me. So please, everybody, go now and download or buy James Kirchick's uh, Secret City. Your subtitle is. The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Okay. Anyway, it's rich, it's funny, it's involving. And, uh, and of course, we are just weeks away from our relentless focus on Noah's new book, The Rise of the New Puritans, which is not out yet, though you can pre-order it. We're asking um, a lot. <laughs> what? We're asking a lot. Focus on Jamie for now. Anyway, I'm just saying. So, so this is a we're 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 uh, the commentary family is sprouting books you know, like, uh, like, like flowers and like flowers in May. So is it May or April showers bring May flowers? Anyway, it's not May, it's June. May flowers James bring Bo pilgrims. There we go. So coming next week, have a great weekend, Jamie, uh, continued, uh, success with the book coming success for Noah with his book. Abe will be, uh, enjoying the weekend as, as I will <laughs> having no book. 
to either promote or worry about right now, except the uh, July-August issue of Commentary, which will be available starting Monday, and we'll talk uh, a lot about that uh, next week. So for Jamie, Abe, and Noah, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the camel burning.